I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. And welcome to this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman. Today we're going to be talking honestly about addiction as we have joined with our community partners, Intermountain Healthcare and Select Health, and our sister stations in Bonneville Radio and TV to focus on what we're calling Healthy Mind Matters, matters of our mental health, our emotional health, our social health, the things we need to delve into, problems and solutions that we can gather together. Um, One area that we've been very concerned about is the area of addiction. You're hearing more and more about the opioid use epidemic, and, and we as a community are trying to find ways that we can try to protect our own family members, our own coworkers. Which brings us to Kelly Howard. Kelly Howard works with Intermountain Healthcare. I guess your position, Kelly, is the patient financial services director. Is that correct, Kelly? Correct. And this story is really um, powerful on many different levels. And so I appreciate you coming to the studio and sharing that with us today. But Intermountain Healthcare um, has been trying to expand its healthcare umbrella to make sure that we are as healthcare providers and as patients taking care of not just our physical health, but our mental health as well. And at some point, that prompted you to write a letter to the president of Intermountain Healthcare about your experience. Can you tell me a little bit about what prompted you to write a letter? And then we'll start talking about your personal experience with addiction. Sure. Um, I actually had read an article in Intermountain Stories um, about opioid abuse and Intermountain's initiative to decrease its use. Um, And it was really focused on prescription medications. Um, As I had lost my son in 2014 from opioid addiction, his was not prescription-related. And I wanted to ensure that that was part of the story as well. So when we say um, there's prescription-related opioid abuse, uh, use and abuse... And then we have non-prescription. Both of those uh, areas would, physicians or healthcare providers may have the opportunity to to interact with patients or family members who are somewhere in that spectrum. They have had a pattern of using opioid medications outside of the normal use, and it has caused physical and mental problems for them. When, When did you determine that your son had had uh, an issue with addiction? Actually, it was identified in um, 2013. Um, I had really no idea prior to that time. And it was a time that my daughter and I were with my son at Bear Lake and um, found, woke up in the morning and found uh, a half bottle of whiskey that we don't drink. And um, my son couldn't sleep. He was agitated. Uh, We approached him, and he told us at that time um, that he had been taking OxyContin. And um, we were very surprised. Um, I really thought that my son would never 
never try alcohol or drugs because of the experiences we'd had with my family and, and his father as well. So that was the first time, and that was uh, probably June of 2013. This is also recent. Correct. And so I know that a lot of our listeners are taking a deep breath, thinking about the courage and the tender feelings that are, are here four years after that first initial and just a few years after the loss of your son. You said you, you didn't think that um, your son's name was Billy? Correct. That he would um, try um, drugs because of family history. I have my own sister who has dealt with a husband who had major addiction issues. And when it was identified, she tried to educate her children to try to help them prevent them and found that even that information, that education didn't prevent them from engaging in drug use. Was Is that similar? Can you tell us a little bit more about that for you? Very similar. Um, we had experienced a lot with his father, and his father was a wonderful man. He 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 was just an amazing person. But we did a lot of support for his father. My children did a lot of support for his father. Um, they were let down many times. Um, so the entire was, family was aware of the addiction? Yeah, it was a involved. little bit of chaos. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I did find that my son had, and especially OxyContin, not just the alcohol, um, I was really surprised. I, I didn't think that was ever going to happen. And what was your next step then? Because you've had some experience, you have the fear and the anxiety at that point. What was your next step? The next step was um, we were going to drive home that morning, and my daughter had driven up in a separate car, so it was just my son and I. And on the way down, um, he told me, I want to come home. He'd been living with some friends um, who were using as well. He said, I want to come home. And I said, Billy, you need help. And if you want to come home, I need you to go through treatment or, or get into to rehab of some type. He said, no, I can do this on my own. Um, I held to that, um, which was not easy as a mother. But two weeks later, he did check himself into an outpatient treatment. And so we went through that for, I think it was six or eight weeks. I have heard um, that often with those of us who become addicted to opioids and or other substances, uh, that it may take a number of times for us to be able to clear the addictive pattern from our system. So since you had had that family history and personal experience, you were you approaching this as it may be a little bit before Billy can actually come free from these substances? Um, just from the history and, and, again, the addiction I'm surrounded with, with family and friends, um, relapse is very real. Um, I don't think there is a miracle cure for this. Um, I've often said, after especially when Billy got much further into it, that I almost feel that we need to take our opioid addicts away to an island for a year to get clean and sober. It is so hard. It is so hard to get sober. You uh, described a change in his behavior. So how old was he when you uh, found the bottle of whiskey and he admitted to you that he was beginning to use opioids? And and was it um, over the, or pardon me, was it uh, prescription drugs that he was buying on the street? Or what were we talking about heroin? At that point, what was Billy using? He was 25. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
don't know if it, I don't think it was prescription, not prescribed to him anywhere. Anyway, um, you're able to get it. It's very accessible. Um, so he he bought it off the street, you know, and you don't hear the words dealers very often, but I'm sure he had his. Right. And, and most of us have had, if not a family member, a close friend or a neighbor who has had a loved one um, deal with opioid addiction. It is powerful. It is around us, the term dealer. It's not just from the 1970s or dealers and pushers. It's a very real uh, reality that someone who lives next door to you may be dealing with illegal drugs, may right. be providing that to someone who's addicted. And it can be quite expensive, $25, $50 a, a pill. So it can. You noticed some behavior changes at the time. You said he wasn't sleeping. So what type of personality did you see in Billy his first 24 years versus at that point? Well, Billy was always kind of a loner. Um, He was a student at the University of Utah. He was an avid reader. Um, He was a very bright young man, Um, but he was always very, very quiet. And so it was very subtle, the changes in my son. Um, He did like to sleep. However, he started looking... um, he looked puffier, and he just looked unhealthy. And he wouldn't come out and join in any of the family gatherings. Um, his room was awful. He wasn't cleaning the cat box. I know that sounds silly. But he was living with my mother at the time. He and my daughter were helping take care of my elderly mother. And he just um, it just wasn't him any longer. He was always so proud of his appearance. And, um, but he always had an excuse for not feeling well or being nauseated or having to go to the doctor. Um, he was just a very different young man. Do you know whether he was seeing a primary care physician or healthcare provider at that time? You know, quite honestly, um, I know who his provider was, um, but I don't think he saw him for any of that. I do know my son, um, felt safe. This is an odd thing to say, but it was the Mother's Day right before he passed, because he passed on in May of 2014. It was a week before Mother's Day. Mm. And we were out taking my mother for a drive, and he called and said, I need to go to the doctor. So my daughter took him to the doctor in the morning, brought him back, and he was living in a hotel at the time, because I wouldn't let him come home. Then he called me, I need to go to the emergency room. So I took him to the emergency room at LDS, and I just left him there, and I went in to say, Billy, I'm leaving. And my son was curled up in a fetal position with his hands under his head, and I said, are you okay? He says, yeah. And I really felt my son was safe, felt safe there. Um, He'd been there a few times, and I actually read the emergency room note from the provider who was so kind. I I just put, actually requested it a month or so ago and just read it last week. And he talked about the conversation with my son and um, that he was a pleasant young man, had a good conversation, and um, that his mother, that he had told him he's living in a hotel, he has enough money for about another month, his mom won't let him come home till he goes to rehab, and he's going to check into it this week. And that was maybe five days before he passed. That was on, um, yeah, that Mother's Day, that Sunday. That's an unforgettable image, Kelly. Yeah. 
And yet, it uh, for me, as an observer, someone hearing your story, it makes me have greater compassion and empathy that anyone who is embattled with a substance abuse addiction can feel that sense of helplessness where you he is going to the hospital because it is bigger than than him bigger mm-hmm. than he can handle himself and uh and and that's just a, an um, an emotional message for us in trying to understand the the power of an opioid addiction so 2013 and, and correct me on this is when you first realized or when he first admitted correct. that that Tell me where you, because this is so difficult as a mother, and, and I'm a mother of boys, too, in their 20s. It is difficult as a mother of teens, a mother of 20s, 30s, a spouse, whoever it may be, to say, I love you enough that I'm going to draw a line on what I can handle in my home. Tell me about that decision process for you. Did you have experience? I've attended Al-Anon. Have you had, did you have support programs that tried to help you do the best you could that would help your son in, a, in addition to, to your other family members? Well, and the program that I attended for my support um, actually helps me be healthy. Um, and there really is no set program. We make up our own mind how we're going to handle it. But you can drive yourself crazy because... Um, they say, you know, you can't, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, um, and um, and it's absolutely true. I did have some support um, trying to do that. I will say that I was also um, somewhat um, taking care of my son and codependent with my son. My daughter, she fought it as well, but he was our my son, and that was her brother. And we did have to draw that line. Um, The last time he was at the home with my daughter, we were getting ready to sell my mom's home. And we are going to have a garage sale the next day. And he was so messed up. And my daughter said, Billy, you need to leave. You, You can't be here anymore. That was the deal. You lived in Grandma's house and helped me. Um, But you had to be sober. So he left. And that was the night that he, well, the next morning he called, and it was Weber County Jail. And he said, um, they said, this is Weber County Jail, will you accept? And I thought, oh, no, there he is. And we lived in Bountiful at the time. And Billy said to me, Mom, come get me. I'm in Bountiful Jail. And I said, Billy, you're in Weber County. And he said, no, I'm not. And he had wrecked his car. Thank God no one had been hurt. Um, wrecked his car, they had impounded it, and um, he didn't know where he was. And I left him there for nine days. That was the hardest nine days that I'd ever experienced, and I did visit him a few times. He didn't belong there. I looked at my son with his head drooping, and just he said, I can do it, Mom, I can do it. And I looked at some of those hardcore people behind him, and um, it was hard. It was very difficult, but I thought, gosh, this has got to be his bottom. And, and let's share with that, because unless you've had an intimate family member go through what Kelly's son has gone through, you might not understand the importance of trying to help them face the reality 
of their addiction, of how it affects their life and affects the lives of others. So in those nine days, you you were hoping for rock bottom, and, and that's a phrase. In other words, you know, in, in the lingo of, of people who are who have family members um, who are dealing with that's that turning point, right? That's what you're hoping for is that our loved ones will hit that turning point and then be motivated to make the change. Correct. And and that is is the uh, part of the agony. I want to read a little something um, for those who just joined us. Joined us. This is Kelly Howard. She is an employee of Intermountain Healthcare. Her title is Intermountain Healthcare's Patient Financial Services Director. Today, we're talking to her as a mother who lost um, a beautiful son. Was he 27 years old? 26. 26 years old, named Billy, who died from an opioid drug overdose. Is that correct? Just three years ago. And when Intermountain Healthcare had uh, rolled out a new commitment to try to help um, empower the community, educate the community and the healthcare um, infrastructure to be aware and help to try to turn the tide of the opioid uh, epidemic. She wrote a letter to her boss, Dr. Mark Harrison. And when he read that letter, this is what he said. Kelly's letter is something I'll never forget. Stories like this, the one she bravely shared about Billy, sound the call for the deepest possible commitment to solving this crisis. We have set ambitious goals with our physicians at Intermountain, and we're working with government leaders and agencies that share our vision to confront this problem head on. It's our duty as physicians, as leaders of organizations, and as friends and as neighbors in our communities to remember people like Billy, to stay vigilant, and to work hard to make a difference. When you hear that, I'm sh- I don't want to refer to you as an expert now. Um, just someone who um, suffered the loss because of uh, the opioid epidemic. What do you see that our community could do to help turn this tide? What, what do you share with other parents and or neighbors about the reality of the opioid epidemic? Well, actually, it's just it's out there and it can happen to you. When the article, they actually did an article in Intermountain Stories a few weeks ago and um, from my story, and I had a number of people reach out to me. It was amazing. Um, The number of people that are going through this. Um, I will say also that when I had so many experiences with other people, um, the last day of my son's life when the EEG person came in to do the EEG, she asked me what had happened, and I told her, and she said, my son's going through the same thing. I go to see the person at um, the mortuary the next day. I showed him a picture of my son. He asked, how did, this, how did he die? His son was going through the same thing. Um, the banker that I met with a week later, his son was going through the same thing. And I just have to share this one piece. I was actually volunteering at an art festival a couple of weeks ago downtown, and I was working with a police officer from Weber County. And I was a greeter. And my son, when I was driving him from the jail to the treatment center in Payson, had told me, Mom, I, am, want, I wish I could find the police officer that when they check me in, and apologize. He said, I was mean. I was yelling at him. I was kicking. I wish I could apologize. 
Well, it happened to be that this Weber County person was in the check-in intake. And to be able to share that with him, and he took off and went to lunch and came back, and he shared it with another police officer that could also be um, that person at intake at Weber County, and he was so grateful to hear that. Because I told him, I said, these are people. That's not who they are. And he said, we know that. And it's the same with our physicians. Over and over I see this in the emergency rooms. Treat them like humans. This is someone's children, a spouse, friend. They're human beings. Um, they weren't always like this. Kelly, thank you. Um, and, and the very real reality, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but um, Kelly's son passed away from opioid um, overdose at the age of 26. We have uh, teenagers. We have, I'll say it again, young women, young men. We have young mothers, young fathers. We have grandparents. We have physicians. We have lawyers. We have accountants. We have every stratus, every demographic in the country, I should say, in the state of Utah, that is or is currently vulnerable or addicted to opioids. It is a part of what Dr. Harrison was saying about being vigilant. We be vigilant with ourselves to understand the over, the, the powerful, um, addictive um, quality of opioids and, and other substances and be vigilant that it could happen to us and it could happen to our family. And uh, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for speaking out. What, what prompted you to, to share your story? Well, the one thing, um, I had gotten together with a few of my friends in California and at, right after the death of my son, and they said, you know, we don't know anyone um, that's gone through what you've gone through, or we don't really, we don't have that issue here. Stories changed. Um, there are there are others. There is hope. I don't know what the answer is. There's so many out there. It breaks my heart to see all of the homeless out there. We have a lot of homeless that are going through this. They were at one time amazing people. I know that. But I just know that there's got to be an answer. I just don't know what it is. Kelly, thank you so much for sharing your personal journey and painful experiences with us to help others. It is part of an ongoing commitment in our community to provide information, to share awareness, resources, support, and treatment uh, resources for anyone, anyone who has a family member who or who may be battling addiction themselves. It is a brain disease, and it can be treated. There is real hope for rehabilitation if we take the first steps to get the help that we need. A Healthy Mind is brought to you by our community partners, Intermountain Healthcare and Select Health and FM 100.3. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you.